my name is Nikki McDonald. I'm a content director at O'Reilly Media, where I acquire and sign books uh, and video tutorials and online trainings on systems engineering and security topics. I'm also the chair of our Velocity Conference, which focuses on helping systems engineers build cloud-native uh, systems. And I worked with Google on this lovely book, the Site Reliability Workbook, which was written by some amazing folks, including Niall Murphy, Dave Renson, who's over there, Kent Kawahara, who's here somewhere, I think, one of my faves of all time, Betsy Beyer, and the amazing Stephen Thorne, who we have here today. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for joining us. So in the book, which I have here, which if you haven't read, you should, um, you talk a lot about the principles and practices of applying SRE outside of Google. You talk about, you know, you feature case studies from some pretty big companies like Home Depot, Evernote, New York Times, which I believe presented here a couple days ago. So let's talk a little bit about that. You know, how do you get started with SRE? Like, say, for example, you know, I'm in a traditional IT versus dev environment. Like, how do I get management buy-in to allow me to, you know, um, spend the time and invest the emotional budget it takes to start an SRE team. When we're talking about like how do you get management buy-in, we see SRE as providing value. And the value that SRE provides to a business might come in various different forms. It might be that you're currently having problems with reliability, with your operational load, your operational costs. There is something that you need to do in order to be able to scale up and be more effective in your environment. The one thing that we say is SRE allows you to say, are we reliable enough? And if we're not, what are we going to do about it? The idea is you need to be able to talk to your management and say, this is something which you will get some value out of. And then you've got to actually be very empathetic and not say this is a one size fits all situation. But what does this business need? Do you need to reduce your costs? Do you need to increase your velocity? Do you need to increase your reliability? And then work out what that SRE team needs to be able to do in that organization and what you're going to be asking that team to do. Once you get the management buy-in, how do you get the engineers on board? Are, they, are there certain things they, they worry about more? You know, like are, they, are they thinking, no, now I'm not going to be able to release software anymore? Something like that? It does depend on like what size and shape of organization you're in, obviously. When you have a group of engineers who are facing some significant change, like a, a different operational model, a different way of doing things, reducing control over the system, there's going to be some amount of time turmoil there, but again, you can address that. You say, like, this is the value that we see you getting out of this. You get, for instance, an SRE team to take over your application in production and perform those operational tasks so that you don't have to. But again, this team might actually be helping your development team do that stuff in production and uh, enable that team to do it better in production and be able to do a better job of operating their own software without the SRE team sort of being in the way. Again, what is the value that the SRE team can provide and how do you set out to actually go and achieve that? Coming back to value again and again, and I think it becomes obvious after, you, you know, you, that, but that's the, the end result is, is kind of like the proof is in the, the work. But how do you, so you've got the engineers, what about the ops folks? I mean, it's a, it's a big cultural shift. This is where the biggest cultural shift will be for the ops folks because the traditional operational model of your operators are installing software, doing your releases. You know, if they're, if they're very, very ops focused, under the SRE model, there's something slightly different that they have to do, which is address their toil. 
And to address toil, you need to be able to have enough time in your day to do that as opposed to working operationally. And you need them to have the software engineering skills or the enablement to accomplish project work in some manner to reduce that operational toil. And for some people, this is, this is actually not what they want. You know, there are people who really like going to work and closing tickets as fast as possible all day. And now we've got a change. And the change is that half the day, they're going to make those tickets not need to exist anymore. You know, um, whatever is the, the thing that consumes most time during the first half of their day, the second half of their day, however you slice that up, they need to be able to be thinking about how they're going to make that not exist anymore. And that kind of change might be traumatic for one type of engineer, and that, that, might, that engineer might actually be better suited in a pure operational role. And to another engineer, it's like, oh my god, this is amazing. I wish I had this years ago. And I have, I have talked to um, one group of engineers, and they said, you know, we started off as an IT organization. You know, we were the people who fixed the desktops. And then we transitioned to sort of running all the servers as well. And then we transitioned, transitioned to this DevOps thing. And then we picked up this SRE book, and we saw this idea of the toil budget. And we transitioned to SRE, and we've never looked back. Like every time we changed, it was an incremental, incremental improvement, but it just wasn't what we needed. But then once we got that toil budget in place, we were just driving down the toil. We were having a great time, and we've, and we've done nothing else from the book. But that one thing has transitioned us from being an organization that was suffering to an organization that really, really enjoys its own work. Okay, you keep talking about toil. So let's, for those who don't know, what is it? I have a, a six-point list of uh, the various things that toil is. But toil is the things that you have to do repeatedly. Toil is the things that a human has to do right now, but a really, if you thought about it, a computer could do. Um, one, of, one of the best definitions of toil I've heard is the actions that you take to do your job that have no lasting value. The, the system existed before, the system existed after, and no ch real changes happened. It's just you had to do a thing during the week in order to keep that system existing. It's like, well, actually, let's, let's talk about how those processes that, that we're taking for granted, that we're doing week to week, you know, running the release, looking at the graphs to make sure the release is fine, preparing a report so that people know that the release went out. You know, these things, uh, nobody would notice if a computer did them instead. So let's get the computer to do it instead. So do you have a process for, I mean, beyond just stuff you don't like to do, for determining like what you should be automating? It should be obvious, but it might not be obvious in an organization where the people who are automating away the toil are a different set of people to the ones actually doing it. But under the SRE model, where you have software engineers who have to go and perform operations, they know what they're doing week in, week out, and it's, it's frustrating them. And it's those things that are the most frustrating, the things that are providing no lasting value that a human has to do, and, and the software engineer is thinking, but can't I just make that not exist anymore? These are the same people that you have enabled to get rid of that, and they're sitting there doing it, and you know, it's very self-directed work, right? We're putting the feedback loop directly in front of the engineer who can fix it. I keep thinking in my head, if only someone could eliminate laundry and dishes and grocery shopping, my weekend toil. But, but when you get, when you have all these, you know, when you have it piling up, like you, I imagine there's an endless amount of it to do. How do you prioritize or how do you find the time to automate the things to reduce that workload? 
one of the SRE principles that we apply is this, is this concept of a toil budget, meaning the engineers that you have doing operations should have a budget of how much of their time is allowed to be spent on, that opera on those operational tasks. And if you exceed that budget, you're not going to have any time to actually automate that stuff away. At Google, the rule of thumb is 50%. 50% of your time is budgeted to be spent on your operational load, your toil. And if you're exceeding that, you have to do something to drive that back down so that you have time to make tomorrow better than today. Monitoring the budget obviously is something which, you know, you could do that with really intensive time sheeting, job task analysis, everything. But the easiest way to find out if you're overspending your toil budget is you go to your SRE team and you say, hi, are you overspending your toil budget? And they will tell you. How often does it happen? Like oh, how, how hard well, is that to, to maintain? You've got to um, understand that at Google, we've got um, somewhere north of 2,500 SREs. There are teams in every state here, totally overloaded by toil, not having enough toil and actually needing more work to do, and everything in the gamut in between. And so when you say, how often does it happen? I'm sure it happens very, very regularly. We have teams that need to do something in order to reduce their toil. You talked about, okay, at, at Google, you have 2,500 SREs, which is... I don't know the actual numbers, but it's in that ballpark right now. So one of the, um, one of the, after we published Google's first book, which was the Site Reliability Engineering book, a lot of people said, well, that's fantastic, Google. That's wonderful. What about me? Like, how do I, how do, I do it? Which is why we published the workbook, to give examples of how other companies can do it. But what do you see as the chief roadblocks for companies who are trying to implement like, the Google version of SRE? The chief roadblocks. So... One of the things that I see being uh, a significant barrier is the psychological safety required in order to be able to be confident working in production and being responsible for production and being responsible for engineering in production. At Google, we have, we ha I think we have this locked down. Like we've got the, the concept of blameless postmortems, but it's not just that. Like you have this confidence that if you're toiling too hard, that you can go to your leadership and say, help. And your leadership will say, absolutely, that's a problem. We'll help you drive that down. But in another organization, if you are not Google organization, you might go to leadership and say, help, we have too much toil right now. They might say, okay, so you're gonna work harder, aren't you? I think one of the things that, that we have at Google, which I would love to see in more organizations, is that, that concept of, all, not just the concept, but the implementation and the feeling of, of psychological safety. That if you have problems, it's not your fault that you have problems. You can go and go to leadership, you can go to your peers, you can go to your development teams, and you can say, let's work together to make this a better place for everyone. And I, I just love that about my organization at the moment, but it's the sort of thing that I fear uh, that in some organizations I see they do have these fears still, and addressing that's very, very hard for them. Yeah, so it's really a top-down. It's top-down, bottom-up. It's top Well, how, so say so you're struggling with that. Say you're in an organization that's not Google, and you're struggling with that. What do you, how can you, I guess, I don't know, manage up? What can you do if, you're, if your leadership is not giving you that kind of safety space? How do you attain that safety? Well, I'm... Gosh, it's a, it's a really hard question. You know, maybe you don't have any solutions, but it's just um, finding the right place I, to work. I, I think it has to come from top down. 
Like you can't say, no, you should be safe in saying, you know, highlighting all the problems in production, highlighting this, saying, you know, toilet, the toilet's too high. And if you say, okay, I should feel safe about that. And then you go and raise these issues and then you get fired. That's not very safe, is it? Right. So. So time to find a new job. <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe. Polish up the resume. <laughs> right. Um, new scenario. Say I decided to move my organization to Google Cloud uh, because it supports SRE. Does that mean I don't need SREs in my organization? It's all taken care of for me? Or what does that mean exactly? How does the workflow change? How does the workflow change when you move to cloud? Okay, let's talk about moving to cloud from your on-prem situation. So with your on-prem situation, you have your own servers, you have your own building, you have, you have a real sort of tactile sense of what you own, what you're responsible for. And I speak from the point of view of somebody who has literally had his own office burned down. You know that you can call the fire department when your office is burning and you know that you're responsible for that. And you have this confidence of like, I'm going to be spending the next four days rebuilding, rebuilding servers, um, staying up late, drinking far too much caffeine. And there's like this confidence of I can see things, I can touch things, I own all of this situation, I own it. When you move to a cloud situation where you no longer own it and a bad situation happens and suddenly your services are down, there's this real sense of loss of control. And so you, you, you don't actually know what's going on necessarily or you've got to wait for the report and you don't have that sense of ownership. Like it might be a similar situation or it might be different, you know, but you no longer have an idea of like, what can you do? So the very first thing that I actually think that you should do when you're moving to a, a cloud situation is monitor your systems so that you know how successful they are, how your users are perceiving your systems, how, I'll raise it now, service level objectives, just the idea of measuring the service as perceived by your users and actually tracking that over time. Because when you lose that control, you lose that tactile feel of things, you need something to replace that sort of feeling of safeness that you can look across the parking lot and see the building that has your servers in it and say, okay, I can't do that anymore. What am I gonna look at to make sure that my customers are having a good time right now? And so that's why I think that monitoring your systems to make sure that you know that your customers are having a good time and being able to plot that and track that over time so that you know, okay, yes, I've come in in the morning and everything is fine. And I have confidence that everything is fine. That's the first thing that I would say that you need to do in order to have that same level of safety and confidence and security that you had when you owned all of your equipment. And then when things do go wrong, you actually know how bad it is in just the same way that you know that you can call the fire department when you have a problem. You can call support and say, I know exactly how bad this is. Tell me how long it will be. And you, you, um, you have that sort of that feedback loop you need to know how bad things are and, and, how, and when they get better. So monitoring, first thing you want to do, yep. set up a monitoring system. What are maybe a few other things you want to do right away off the bat to make sure you don't, I mean, you have retained some control over the situation? Looking um, for some best practices. Once you're in a good cloud situation, and I, I don't mean just um, lift and shift some VMs into the cloud, but you actually have, you've implemented some of the things like job control systems like Kubernetes or a serverless situation. You want to be able to track well, once you have the monitoring as well, be able to partition your failure domains effectively. And by that, I mean, it would be better if when you're rolling out your software, it goes to 1% of your users first. So 1% of your users see the new version, 
oh yeah, that's, that's working pretty well. The monitoring gives me the confidence that it's working pretty well. And then when I go to 10% of my users and 100% of my users over time, and then that gives you the confidence that as you roll out software, if you have a problem, you can, you can just stop serving from that and roll back. And then another way of positioning failure domains is to say, okay, so it would be better if I was in multiple zones multiple cloud zones and even multiple cloud regions if possible so that um, if there are problems either operationally on your own side like you've done a bad push to a particular cluster or a particular zone or there are operational problems on the google side because being honest you know there are things that happen we roll out software as well you need to be able to say okay it would be better if we didn't serve from that zone or even if you continue serving from that zone, it's only serving a small percentage of your customers. So it's only affecting a small percentage of your user base and you're actually insulated from failure as opposed to having all your eggs in one basket. Yeah, I think that just makes sense. Yeah, it's, it feels like common you sense. Say, but... You say it makes sense, but it's an architectural decision that has to be made pretty early on to actually partition things up. And if you don't think about that at the very start of your cloud journey, then you might end up in a situation where it would have been better five years ago if we had petitioned things, but we still depend on that one VM in that one zone. And when that VM reboots, we have a problem. And, you know, like you can do things to mitigate that. But, you know, at the end of the day, it would be better if you made that decision earlier so that you could have a better architecture. So, okay, I'm going to throw this one here. What if that is exactly what I did? I did it all wrong. What if I didn't follow any of these best practices? And here I am with this problem. What do you do? Well, first of all, you find out if it's a problem because you have your monitoring and you work out how much of a problem it is and you work out how much your customers care about that. Because let's talk about site reliability engineering. It's the engineering of just like the engineering practice of providing that feedback loop that allows you to say this is not only a problem, but it's a problem that is causing this effect to this percentage of my customers over time. And now this is something that we need to go to the business and the product and, and say, okay, you want to develop these features, but we have this problem and it is exactly this size and shape. And we have two options here. We can say, can you, the business, accept this? In which case, let's just move on and develop more software and release more software. Or do you, the business, want to make a change here and then we come up with a plan to improve it. And this is really important. We have the monitoring to show we fixed it. And if we don't, then we've got to go all the way back to what I was saying earlier. We have to know how bad this is first and monitor it and monitor it from the customer's point of view. That's exactly what I was going to ask. That was bringing up another question. Who, so on the site reliability team, who is responsible for making sure the system's reliable? And then how do they measure it? How do you set up? Is it through the monitoring tools? Or? So who is responsible on the site reliability engineering team for it being reliable? I will add one word to that sentence. Reliable enough. Site reliability engineering is about making the software reliable, the system reliable enough. Reliable enough for its users. And the whole team is responsible for that. But how do you determine what users want? How do you de determine what is reliable enough? That's a great question. And it's different for every organization. Reliable enough really actually comes back to a product question. You're talking reliability engineers. We're actually probably best off being able, going along to the product managers, skipping over the development team and going straight to the product managers and saying, hey, do our users like the reliability of our system? Are they enjoying it? Are they having a good time? 
And if the answer is, yeah, actually, like we talk to our customers all the time and nobody's noticed any unreliability. Okay, so let's uh, underline that. It's reliable enough right now. So now we know that, it, that the system is reliable enough. And then, you know, talking to product management, talking to development team, analyzing your system, find out what metrics you can use as a proxy for that. Like, is the website fast enough? Does it return HTTP 200s enough? Do pipelines process their log things enough? And in fact, if you don't know, find out how fast they do it and draw the line in the sand and say, okay, that's, that's our target now. And then if you cross that target, go and find out if the user's noticed. It really comes down to a user question. Like go to your users and find out do they like your system. Now, obviously, deciding who your user is is different for different people. So if you're running a fraud management system to, to deny people um, when they try and do fraudulent transactions in your system, your users will be very happy if your system doesn't work. So you've got to define your customer pretty uh, concretely with something like that. It sounds like you really need to be spending a lot of time talking to your customers. You need to talk to somebody who talks to your customers. So, Somebody should be talking to your customers. Yes. I hope this isn't a secret to anybody. If you want to run a successful business, you should make sure your customers like your product. And insight reliability engineering, it holds true just as much as in development, just as much as in product, just as much in customer support. Because your customers are what really matters to you as a business. It's where you provide value. Please, providing value. Is, it, is, there, is there an instance where maybe you're providing too much value? Is it possible to make your system too reliable or set reliability goals that are maybe too ambitious? Yes, absolutely. Um, let me just say 100% reliability is too high. Because if you ask somebody, how reliable do you want to be? They'll say, all right, because that's just logical. It's like I've got an option of a number and so I'll just pick the high one, right? You know, like how much would you like to pay for a new car? Zero dollars or one, whatever. But it works for me, right? But then let's circle all the way back to the beginning of this conversation. What value are you providing by even attempting to provide 100% reliability when your users' internet connections don't achieve four nines reliability? where their mobile connections don't achieve three nines reliability. Uh, sorry, those are estimates. I'm not actually, you know, calling anybody out there. But my brother-in-law's internet connection goes out when it rains. So he's not getting 100% reliability, right? Mine does too. <laughs> so what value are you providing? And then how much will it cost to achieve it? And then if you actually say, okay, so you're currently achieving, oh, let's just, you're currently achieving four nines either through good engineering or through luck, and somebody says, I want you to achieve, you know, six nines reliability, okay. So these are the projects we have to do, rough figures, you know, this project will give, it, give us another nine, it'll cost $5 million, this project will give us another nine, it'll cost us $50 million. How, much, how reliable do you want to be given these estimates? And if you talk to somebody in business and they'll say, okay, so ah, there's, uh, there's costs associated with these numbers. They can actually make cogent decisions on that. And it might be that they can say, actually, that extra nine represents this much in, in lost revenue. So that decision to spend that extra money makes sense. Or they might actually say, but nobody even notices that we have this level of reliability. They wouldn't even notice if we were half as reliable. Can we be less reliable, please, and save money? Is actually something that you can get somebody in this position to actually ask of you once they see the costs associated with increasing reliability, and that's perfectly fine. I get people coming to me and say, Stephen, now that we have site reliability engineering, does that mean that we're gonna be the most reliable we can possibly be? And it's like, no. You don't automatically increase your reliability by applying SRE. 
what you do is find out what your reliability is and what you need to be and try and be reliable enough. Reliable enough, not super reliable. Okay, so given that, yeah. at some point you will experience failure. Something bad will happen. Your system will go down. You've already budgeted for it and plus that's just life. What do you do? What's the process for handling it when the SRV process for when something fails or goes um, bad? So in my experience, we put our SREs on the very front line. So when, when things go wrong, when the system has an outage, the very first people to get notified are SREs. Because they're the people who push to production, they deal with it operationally day to day. They're the person who touched it last. They're the best place people to fix it. So they start that incident response. They find out where the customers are being impacted and they do whatever they need to do in order to bring the system back to operational state, uh, stop the bleeding. And then, once things are back up and running and you're, you're reasonably confident you have, won't have a recurrence, you've had an outage, you've had a negative impact, you've, you know that your customers were not happy with this. And so, you need some kind of feedback loop which will mean that the likelihood of this happening again decreases. So, the, the, um, the approach we take is, um, we write what we call a postmortem, and a postmortem is a document which documents what went wrong, a timeline of exactly when it went wrong, who was impacted, to what level they were impacted. If we can work out our revenue loss, we want to work that out. We want to be really sort of accurate about what happened, all the facts. And then we, we document what went right during this incident. And it might be what went right was like we had exactly the right playbooks, we had exactly the right people to contact, we had the monitoring in place so that, that allowed us to find out where it was, we, we knew where the tools were, and what went wrong. So we document, you know, obviously the precipitating factors here, but all the other things that went wrong, like those documents which were out of date, that tool that didn't work, those procedures that weren't tested and didn't turn out to, to not work at all. And then the thing that I like to always see is a nice beefy section on where we got lucky. Because this is the things that you want to have in the what went right section in the next postmortem. Where we got lucky is all of those things like somebody was walking past somebody else's desk and saw a log message which meant that they knew exactly how to fix it in with just a few keystrokes. It might be we didn't know that we had this monitoring but it turned out to be super useful once we found out about it. You know, all of those where we got lucky things, we want to convert into where things went right. And then the last section of the postmortem, and this is, this is the product of the postmortem. And to this point, all we're doing is documenting stuff. And you could write this down in the document, throw the document away, and nothing improves. The last thing is the action items. These are the things that you go through your postmortem and you say, you know what? This is something that we should do a better job of. This is something that we should make sure that we always do next time. This is something which we should make not possible again. And we, we write all of these action items down and we put them into our bug tracking system and we make these things that, that our SREs in their project time, as well as addressing toil, will be working on in order to make sure that the next time something goes wrong, the outage doesn't happen or the outage is shorter or that we know what we're going to do next time something happens. Because um, our SREs are responsible for the reliability of these things in production and your outages are your absolute best teaching moments for what your customers care about. So the, the key to these postmortems is that they're blameless, right? And that's, that's, that's part of it, like the blameless postmortem. But 
I imagine that some people, I mean, failing never feels good. I, I imagine some people might still be a little bit afraid. There might still be blame attached. So coming back to the blameless thing, and in fact, I'm so steeped in Google culture now that I forgot to say blameless because I take it for granted. And in fact, um, I was asked earlier today, so you're an SRE, what was the worst situation you ever faced as an SRE? And it was actually the time that I made a change to a load balancer configuration, and I caused a, a particular web interface that took, you know, you, you clicked on a thing and it downloaded a report, but that report could take ages to download, so, um, so it'd take up to like 25 minutes. But I refactored the load balancer configuration and I wound that timeout down to five minutes by accident. And somebody found that on a graph, noticed that this was a problem, it wasn't monitored correctly, and found that and said, hey, Steve, you did this a couple of weeks ago and I think that people have been having timeouts doing their reports and I just found it. And that was the worst moment of my career up until that point because I realized I had made a massive mistake and I was asked, hey, can you fix it? And I'm like, immediately fix it. And then I was asked, hey, can you write a postmortem? And I had to write this postmortem where I blamed myself for this incident. But I had not yet internalized that blameless culture. And I, I was full of sort of anxiety, adrenaline, I was sweating, I was really worried for my job, for my career prospects. And the person who had spotted this was an engineering director. So it was an engineering director who'd asked me to write this postmortem and send it back to him. And the fact that I was able to do that and get all of these action notes out. But the key thing here is not like that it was, it was blameless so I shouldn't have been so nervous. But the reason you really want a blameless postmortem is as soon as you blame a system or a human or a thing that happened, you stop looking for all of those other causes for what, for what went wrong. Because really actually what happened there was we didn't have sufficiently good monitoring. Really what happened was the code review process failed us because nobody noticed that I had wound this back. Really what happened was we didn't document why we had those timeouts set the way they were and why they were so important. All of these things, and I, I could list off like four or five more things that went wrong, that in that postmortem ended up in action items. And we completed most of those action items. You know, we put testing in place, we put better documentation in place, we put, we tried to put better monitoring in place, but it turned out to be really hard, so we didn't actually do that. But, and this is another key thing that I want to say about postmortems. You don't have to complete all your action items because if you complete enough of them, you're going to be defended next time this happens. Because it might be super, super, super expensive to do that one thing you came up with an idea for. But you might have had another idea, which is another action item, which you do in an afternoon. So the idea is to, by de defense in depth, by having good action items, to, to complete enough of those action items so you have confidence that it doesn't happen again and you have the monitoring to know that it doesn't happen again. Let's talk about something more positive. Okay. Uh, let's, talk about, let's talk about success. How do, okay. you, how do you measure success uh, in SRE? And maybe share a few examples of some success stories. Um, so success in SRE. So it's easy to say, hey, a successful SRE team runs a reliable service. It's not entirely the best way of going about things though, because then you're judging, hey, they run an unreliable service, they're not successful. They run a reliable service, they're successful. But it's also a product of the, the situation, the engineering, the, the stack that they run on. What you want to see from a successful site reliability engineering team is that they know how reliable their system is. 
and they have a plan for how to improve it over time or reduce their toil over time and that they're delivering on that plan and those deliverables are actually causing a change. So a successful SRE team is able to demonstrate the impact of the work that they're doing. If you have an SRE team that was running a reliable service last year and running a reliable service this year, but can't tell you what projects they completed in that time that actually had a measurable impact, it's like, what are we doing here? One of the phrasings I like is that an SRE team should be doing different work every 18 months. I've heard the phrasing, automate yourself out of a job, but it, this, is, this really means automate yourself into a different job. Like 18 months ago, you were doing all of that operational work in that way, and since then you've automated it. Now you've got different operational work. Last year, you're doing this project work. That This year, you're doing a different type of project work because you completed that. Now, there is the ultimate success for an SRE team though, which I have, in my career, I've only ever seen once. And we actually had a, a, a really lovely touching ceremony to commemorate it in my office. We had an SRE team that finished their work. One of the things, and we talked about it at the beginning of this interview, was is that an SRE team must be providing some value. So they are taking over operational work from the developers. They are helping developers increase their velocity. They're taking the pager so that when things go wrong, they can resolve the situation faster. And so one of the engineering teams in, in, in my office in London automated all everything. They automated all the releases. They automated all the capacity management. Um, they, they got to the point that every time they got paged, there was nothing they could do because they had all the automated mitigations in place for all of the normal operational things. And if they got paged, they always had to escalate to the developers because it wasn't anything simple to fix. It was something complicated to fix, which required a developer to address it. So they drove their operational load basically to zero. They didn't have any project work left to do because they'd done that. They, didn't, they resolved a sufficient number of action items. The system was reliable enough. And so they were able to say to the developers, so um, I think we're done. You can have the system back. You want to do a release? The button hits itself once a week. Um, you, you want to do capacity management? That's all handled by this automated system. And so they trained the developers up on how that automation worked so they could keep that ticking over. And we took all of those very successful SREs and gave them to teams that weren't, that weren't finished yet. Uh, so that they could actually spread that knowledge around and... Um, so I was getting worried that they'd actually automated themselves out of a job. <laughs> if you find SREs that have actually managed to do this, you have struck gold. Because they now know how to do this for other teams, they know how to scale up their work, and you should grab onto these people with both hands and say, you are the best SREs we have right now. Help everyone else achieve your success. I love that too, like the sharing, the, the goal of, sh of sharing and trying to share that success, helping other people be successful, going into other teams and then sharing what you know and like all working toward that same goal of helping each other be successful instead of like competing against each other, you know, so that's wonderful. Before we wrap up, so we're almost done, I would love for you to take uh, the opportunity to offer, if you have one piece of advice to give uh, an organization just starting out with SRE, what would it be? One piece of advice. I'll give my really short explanation of how you should start doing SRE, which is to pick your most mission-critical, customer-facing, important application, the thing you care about the most. Monitor that 
in the simplest possible way, as in just make sure that it's fast and serves successes and alert on those, those metrics and get your SRE team to respond to it when it goes wrong, write postmortems, find every single reason why it has problems and get that team to address those issues. SRE is one way of doing operations and it's probably a pretty expensive way of doing operations because you're not doing operations 100% of the time and you're funding um, software engineers to do those operations. So give them the thing to work on that can provide the most value to your company because it's the thing that matters to your company the most. And then give them the empowerment that to actually go and resolve issues with that system. Don't tie a hand behind their back. Let, let them do any software engineering that they need to do. Let, allow them to, to feed action items back to the product teams and give them that empowerment to go and actually address the reliability issues that they see. And that's the core of it. It, it does require you know, all sorts of organizational issues. It requires uh, interactions, all of this. But it comes down to ask that team, what are you going to do about the reliability of the system? And the answer might be nothing, because it's reliable enough. Let's talk about how we get releases out faster. Or it might be, these are our plans to get it done. And OK, you've got those plans. Let's talk about getting those to success. Comes back to value, right? Comes back to value. And trust. Value and trust, blamelessness. If you don't have blame, I didn't actually talk about the negative aspect of blameful situations. If you have a situation where you, uh, people are facing a blame culture, they get afraid to bring up problems. Your SRE team has to be confident that they can say that there is a problem here. And it might be with human processes. It might be with systems. It might be with systems that humans identify very, very strongly with. No, you can't blame Project Foo. That's my baby. No, no. You, you've, with, in, a, in a blameless culture, you should be able to say, hey, I've noticed an issue. It might be with human processes. It might be with systems. Let's talk about how we're going to work together to make this a better situation. Um, an SRE team must be able to make tomorrow better than today. That's a lovely way to end our conversation. Thank you so much. Thank Pleasure talking to you. I think we might have some books to give away. We've got a number of books to give away. So we're going to drag a box out in here, and if anybody would like a copy of the Site Reliability Workbook, you're free to have one today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, and have a good afternoon, everyone. Thank you very much. Thank you.